Every Sunday the text is good, but this morning I've got a good one. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You may be seated. Let me open us in a quick word of prayer again. Holy Spirit, we... We call upon you to open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand the wonder of what this text says, but not just understand it, that we may know it and believe it and so be transformed. We pray this in the, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As humans, we are very concerned with love. Uh, Some might say we're obsessed with love. You could think of, would you rather work the worst job you can imagine for your life or live a life without love? Most of us would pick the worst job. Um, And as as a result, our culture is likewise obsessed with love. Just look at the kind of artistic expressions of our culture, whether it's in movies or music. Uh, All of the top movies are typically love stories. They've found out that you can tell a pretty mediocre story but if it's a love story, people still watch it. Why? Because we're so concerned with love. In fact, when we make adaptations of great literary works, such as The Lord of the Rings, if there isn't a love story in there, we're going to put one in there, right? Because Peter Jackson realized if we have 14 hours of the trilogy movies and there's no love story, people will go riot in the streets. So we're going to stick one in there, even though it's not in the actual books. Not bitter about this, just saying. Shows how much we care about love. Of course, if you look at music, right, almost all of the chart-topping singles for the last 50 years are about love. 
So the Beatles tell us that all we need is love. Elvis can't help but falling in love. Beyonce is crazy in love, and Taylor Swift has a whole love story for us. And of course, let's not forget DC Talk's great single, Love is a Verb, spelled L-U-V, because it was the early 90s. We're clearly interested in love. That's my point. It sells, it attracts, it interests us. And so it's no wonder that the text we're looking at this morning has probably one of the most well-known lines from the entire Bible, and that is the three words, God is love. People may never have been to church, they may never have read the Bible, but they'll quote that to you, God is love. Now we have to be honest that that phrase has been sloganized often and emptied of its meaning and, and meant to mean things it does not mean, and we'll get into that. But what it also means is that after all the qualifications are done, it's the great and beautiful and wonderful news that the living God of the universe is for you, is concerned about you, cares for you. And as we begin to not just understand that, but to believe it, it transforms us. It transforms how we relate to other people. That's John's burden for us this morning. He wants us to know the love of God for us, And as that permeates down into our souls, to then begin to go and love each other likewise. So our outline for us this morning, first, God is love. Second, that love perfected in us. Third, that love in us is our evidence. So first point, God is love. Follow along as I read the first five verses again. Verse seven, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, just to recap how John is kind of structuring this letter, if if you haven't been with us for uh, previous parts, but there's three tests of authentic Christianity that John goes over again and again. See what seems to have happened. There seemed to be some false teachers who came into the church. They were denying some basic Christian teaching. They were able to lead Christians out of the church and form their own new, you know, Second Baptist Church of wherever this is, Ephesus. Um, And Paul, or sorry, John. John is writing to the original church, who is the true church, who held true, who held fast to what they had received from John himself, which John had received from Jesus. He's writing to them, this church that's gone through great relational strife, who's seen brothers and sisters walk away. He's assuring them, one, that they are the true church, and he's giving them, two, three tests of how they can know what authentic faith looks like. And there's the three tests. First, the moral test. Whoever's a Christian will obey the commandments of Jesus. And anyone who just disregards the commandments of Jesus cannot be a Christian. Again, these are not how we become a Christian. This is evidence that we are Christians or tests for authentic faith. Second is a social test that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the third test is, um, what's the third test? Moral, social, doctrinal. Belief that Jesus is the Christ, 
that he's come in the flesh. So here we are on this social test. Now, again, if you've been following along, you've noticed this is not the first time John has talked about this test of loving one another. And John is not having amnesia. He hasn't forgotten that he talked about it in chapter three, and then he talked about it again in chapter two. But what John is doing is every time he talks about these tests, he's kind of giving slightly different emphases. So in chapter two, when John gives this test of loving one another, it's in the context of, well, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. It's not here in its fullness. It's an already but not yet kingdom, but it's present in the hearts of believers. And it's a kingdom of light and it's a kingdom marked by love. So walk in that light for the light is already here. That's the first emphasis. The second time, He says this loving one another is evidence that we've passed from death to life because to love someone as Christ loved us in that sacrificial way goes such so much against our our flesh that if we love this way it's evidence that we must be new 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 creations then here and finally in this third time he goes over this test the emphasis is love he says it right in the verse one beloved let us love one another why for love is from God, and in fact, more than that, love, sorry, God is love. It's something basic to his being. It's one of his fundamental attributes. And that brings us to a really important question, which is this. John tells us God is love, but I wanna ask you, when you think of God, what comes to your mind? My guess is we have two, two answers. We have one, our, our reflective answer, which is our thought-out answer. It's the one that we got in Sunday school, we got from reading the Bible, from reading good books, maybe the one that we get from classes we're taking. And it's what would be the right answer. God is holy, he is loving, he is good. But then we have our pre-reflective answers. And these are less thought-out. They more come from the gut. Half the time we're not even aware of this feeling or thought until certain events come. So this is the answer that comes when you get the call in the middle of the night that you've been dreading, that tragedy has happened, and you cry out to God, God, why would you, how could you? This is the answer we give in response when there's a sin we've been fighting for so long, we find ourselves entangled in it again, and we're just, we're sick of it, and we're so discouraged, and we're like, God, where are you in this? It's the answer we give when we take a step of faith and obedience to our Lord and it brings unexpected suffering. We think, you called me to this. A.W. Tozer once famously wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And of course, our reflective answers, the ones we think through are so important. If we don't think the right things about God, we have no hope of 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 knowing in our depths that, uh, who God is. But of course, those pre-reflective answers, that's the one that really forms us, that really directs our footsteps in our life. And what John wants us to know, not just reflectively, but pre-reflectively in the depths of our being, he wants us to know unequivocally who God is, that God is love. That's an amazing statement. Notice he doesn't say God is, God is loving. There, uh, you know, if you've not had the worst life in the world, you've known loving people. <laughs> my parents were loving, my siblings are loving, my kids are loving, my wife is loving. What that means is that there are people who, who act in loving ways. 
But everyone who is loving, nonetheless, will do things that isn't loving, right? That's the, that's the deception of sin. The most loving people can go around and be indifferent or even do hateful things. John does not tell us, you know, have hope because God is loving. He says God is love. This is a little esoteric, but hang with me. That means that God's being is love. It means that everything God does must be loving because God can only act from who he is. God is love. So let's walk this out here. This morning when the sun came up, yes, that was due to the, you know, orbits of the planets, yada, 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 but it also happened because God loves you. And so he brought up the sun. And when you woke up and you had breath in your lungs, it's because God, who is love, loves you. Everything God does is loving. When he brought you to this little church building, whether you've been coming for 50 years, this is your first time. It's because God loves you. And in his divine providence, he brought you here this morning. And when he wants to speak to us from this text, again, it's not just a random coincidence that we're looking at this, but it's because he loves you. Everything God does is love. Who is God? God is love. Now, and, and, and John's burden is that we would grasp and marvel at this love until it begins to transform all aspects of our lives, including how we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. God is love. But as I mentioned in our introduction, we do have to qualify that a little bit because it can be sloganized into meaning basically, God is love, therefore God just wants me to be happy. Let me do, you know, as long as I'm happy, it's fine, God is good. That's not the case, because God is love. It's a primary attribute, everything that is loving, but God is not only love. And in fact, earlier in this letter, John tells us what else God is. He says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If anyone walks in darkness but claims to have fellowship with God, he is a liar, the truth is not in him. God is love, but God is also light. Some of you saying God is holy, he's righteous. And so everything, in the same way that everything God does is loving because God is love, that means everything God does is right, righteous, holy, because God is light. And so what that means is that although God loves us, he, oh, he is for you. He cannot wink at sin as if it's not a big deal. Everything he does is holy as well. And so his love for us is holy. And this explains one of the reasons, I think, why our pre-reflective responses struggle with, like, God, do you really love me? Because a holy love means that God's greatest desire for us is not necessarily that we would be happy in the short term. God's love being a holy love means his greatest desire is not necessarily to be comfortable. His greatest desire for us is that we would become who we were created to be. That we would begin to look more and more like his son Jesus. And so sometimes that means denying us things that make us happy in the short term because in the long term, it's going to make us more like his son. It's not because he doesn't love us, so that's how we, that's what we think. God, why did you take this from me? Why did you take my parents from me? Why did you take this job from me? Why did you? But everything God does is loving because he is love, but he's also light. So sometimes he brings hardship and suffering so that we might become the people we were made to be. But again, we've got to distinguish when he says God is love, it doesn't mean that it's not some sentimental, vague. But God really is for us. He's out for our best. 
Now here's the thing, so far we've been talking about God's eternal nature, he is love. It's very esoteric, it's very in the clouds. We can't see it because we can't see God. So we say God is love, well, what does that look like? So John tells us, you know what, look, God isn't just for you, but he's, it's not just that God is, is love, but God has demonstrated for you what his love looks like. He's, he's made his invisible love visible. He's given two evidences of this. As we get in verse 9 and 10, the first evidence, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest. Again, God is love. We can't see God. He's invisible. But in this, his love was made visible, manifest. This is how we see it. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There's a really popular board game called Settlers of Catan. I think it was made when I was in college, and it was all the craze. I think college kids still, you guys still play Settlers of Catan? Yeah, okay, thank you. I'm not that old. I still got it. Uh, the point of settlers is, is you're trying to build cities and roads, and if you build enough cities, you win. But in order to build cities, you have to have resources like bricks and wood and sheep and wheat and rock. And one of the curveballs in settlers is, I mean, there's ways built into the game that you can acquire resources, but if you don't have the resources you need to build a city, when it comes to your turn, you can barter with other players. And there's no rules for what you can barter, right? So you can, I mean, I guess you could say, I'll give you 50 push-ups for a brick, right? There's just, so it can, it, it can take the game in all kinds of interesting directions. But the question is, when you get to your turn and you're like, I need a brick to build a city. And so you ask, does anyone have any brick they'd be willing to trade with me? The question for that person is, who has a brick is, yes, what is it worth to you? Is it worth two sheep? Is it worth two sheep and a stone? Is it worth your entire hand? What is it worth to you? Now, one of the theories of atonement, that's a big word, but Christians throughout the ages have tried to find ways to understand what did Jesus do on the cross? How do we understand salvation? And one of them that Christians have come to is called the, the uh, um, what is it called? Ransom theory? The ransom theory. Thank you. I'm sorry. The, the ransom theory. Now, I'm going to be honest. There are some within kind of Reformed Christianity that are very uncomfortable with this theory, and there's, it can be taken to, to bad extremes. What the ransom theory does is it looks at Mark 10, 45, where it says, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came to give his life as payment. That's what ransom means, to buy something back. So Christians have answered, okay, who is Jesus paying that ransom to? That's the idea. And so the way Christians have thought through this is that when Adam and Eve fell, it wasn't just that they were separated from God, but that they used to be owned by God, but now because they had rejected God, they're in some way owned by sin, by Satan himself. And so Christ, when he died on the cross, was offering payment to Satan, who is our ruler in a sense, in a sense, is all, you know, in a sense. And so his life was a ransom. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, this is what C.S. Lewis does in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Edmund had sinned, and even when he repented and went back to Aslan, the witch said, no, he's mine. You need payment for him. The deep magic requires it, right? Augustine believed this. So you can imagine, again, this is all very metaphorical. You can imagine Satan saying to God, okay, you want to ransom your people. What are they worth to you? Just like in the game of Settlers, you ask, okay, you want brick? What is it worth to you? And this is where we get to the evidence of God's love for us. Because in verse 9, it says, in this, God's love is made visible. That God sent his only son. 
God could have given all the money in the world to ransom us. He could have given fame and honor. But he gave his only son. I think that's a question sometimes we ask God. God, what am I worth to you, really? I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet. I'm not that great in so many ways that I know and God knows. What am I really worth to you? This is God's love made visible. He gave his only son as ransom for us to buy us back. That's the first evidence of God's love for us. He gave his only son, but he gives a second evidence in verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It wasn't just that God sent his only son, that he sent his best, but he sent his son to die as our propitiation. That's a big theological word, but it means satisfaction, appeasement. Um, one of the things the Bible teaches is that God feels wrath over sin. Now, when we think of God's wrath, we're not meant to picture God throwing a holy tantrum up in the throne room of heaven. God's wrath is God's appropriate and necessary response to evil. If God didn't have wrath on evil, he'd not be good. He wouldn't be worthy of our worship. And so when it says that Jesus was our propitiation, it means that he took all of that wrath, all of God's divine displeasure on sin, he took all of it on himself so that there was none left over for us who deserve that wrath but stand in the grace of God. Now here's the thing, is in our circles, we tend to view, although there are various theories of the atonement, we tend to view the substitutionary atonement as central. Christ was our substitute in our place. He took the judgment for us. And I agree with that, but, but sometimes, you know, proximity breeds contempt. We hear it so many times, we're just like, yeah, Jesus took all the wrath of God, and we don't stop and wonder what that would have been like. To, to experience God's wrath for just my sin lead me to, should cause me to tremble, but to bear the wrath for all the sin of all the world. This is evidence that God is for you, by the way. He loves you. There was a 16th century country pastor named George Herbert. He was just a no-name pastor. But after he died, it was found that he'd published a book of poetry, and in time it became viewed as some of the best poetry of the century. And people realized this no-name country pastor was a poetic genius. And as a pastor, he wrote a lot of his poems about Christianity and faith, and he wrote one poem about Good Friday, and it's written from the perspective of Christ hanging on the cross. George Herbert is kind of like the 16th century um, uh, Wendell Berry. But anyways, um, he wrote this, This is Jesus on the Cross, as he's experiencing the, the wrath of God. It's a little bit archaic language, but hang with it. Such sorrow as if sinful man could feel it. If sinful man could feel the sorrow or feel his part, he would not cease to kneel till all were melted, though he were all steel. Was ever grief like mine? So if we could taste just a part of the wrath that Christ experienced, we, would, we wouldn't get off our knees even if we were made of steel, we would be puddles on the ground. He continues the great moment of Christ's bearing our wrath, but oh, my God, my God, why leavest thou me, the Son, in whom thou dost delight to be? My God, my God, never was grief like mine. 
You know, one of the things we, we can know when we come to Christ, many of us have tragedies in our life and griefs we bear every day. When we come to Christ, he bore grief that is greater than anything we've ever touched. As he bore the wrath of God, all of it, not just for me, not just for you, but for the world. And this is evidence that God loves us. And this is why John finishes this section in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, so we also ought to love one another. Think of this is who God is. God is love. He's demonstrated it for us. This is who God is, and we claim to know God and follow him. What else could we do but to live likewise? And as that, as that truth that we are loved and accepted and God is for us more than we can possibly fathom begins to be true to us, that's where life transformation happens. So that's our first point. God is love. Second point, that love perfected in us. Let me read verses 13 to 19. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him, and by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I'm getting a little bit of feedback. We love because he first loved us, now, I'm, we have to be, I have to be honest with you, John's train of thought gets a little confusing here, and most commentators will say it's really hard to find a single strain of thought through here. John seems to make an aside here all of a sudden in verses 13 to 15 where he gets into this doctrinal test that Jesus is the Son of God. And one of the things we want to remember when we read the epistles is we're not reading an essay. An essay is meant to be taken independently. They don't assume that there's a background situation you don't know. You could read it a thousand years later, know nothing about the author or the background, and, 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 and be fine. But this is a letter written to a situation that we can only guess at. And so when we get to parts in the letter, we're like, I don't understand why he brings us here. Why, we're, we just have to realize it may have made perfect sense to the original readers, but God in his providence didn't feel like it was necessary for us to know. And so I'm not going to be focusing as much on verses 13 to 15 just because it's, it's kind of an aside um, we've talked about the, the doctrinal test before, and John's main emphasis in this text is on this loving one another. So I'm just going to say a couple quick words about it, and then we'll move on to verses 16 to 19. But the one thing, but again, you know, what's the, what's the doctrinal test? Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. How do we know we're Christians? We make a true confession that Jesus is the Son of God. But here's what I want to point out about this that's very interesting. So John talks about, again, verse, you know, verse 14, we've seen and testify the, fa- uh, uh, testify the Father has sent his Son, this, this true doctrine, this true teaching. Verse 15, the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. What does all this true doctrine lead to for John and for the apostles? Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. All this true doctrine, what does it bring John to? It's like, so, 
as a consequence, as a result, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Too often, we separate sound teaching from love. And so you have the guys who are like all about their doctrine and they got it all worked out and they're jerks. And then you have the guys who are like very loving and kind, but they don't really have any convictions. And it's like, no, no, no. We don't have the option to pick. We're both. And our sound doctrine should always lead us to know the love of God. And if it doesn't, something's broken in how we're doing it. There's a story um, of a time when Karl Barth, Karl Barth, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, not an evangelical, he got a lot of things wrong, but he also got a lot of things right. And he was massively, massively uh, influential in terms of academic theology. And there's a story, and, and, I mean, the guy wrote like a five-part church dogmatics. He, he just wrote tons of stuff. Everything after him is in some way talking and, and, and responding to Karl Barth. There's a story that he was one time giving a lecture at the University of Chicago. So an eminent theologian, you know, this huge brain, gives this lecture, who knows what it was on. But there was a question and answer afterwards where people would ask questions. And, and a student stood up and asked him, Professor Barth, could you summarize your life's work in a sentence? Which is a pretty audacious thing to ask a man who's written, you know, more than what most of us have read. I think most professors would have been, that's a dumb question, next. But Karl Barth responded this way. He said, yes, I think I can. There's a song I learned as a child in church, and it goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think Barth's right. I think that's what John is saying We've come to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We've seen and testified the Father sent his Son, and so we have come to know what's it all led to. We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, that Jesus loves me. I know this, because I see it in the Bible. So that's my little aside on doctrine. Doctrine should always lead us to know God's love and to love others, but he continues into the social test in the second half of verse 16. He picks up again, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So what he's saying is, look, God is love. And obviously, if, if God is love, that means if we love, we're gonna abide in God. And if we don't love, we won't abide in God. And he says, in this is God's love perfected in us. And we don't fear, but we have confidence. This word perfect is important. It can mean completed. It can mean fulfilled. But this idea of God's love for us, there's, there's, it can be in some way completed in us. And when it's completed in us, we then have confidence before God, both now and then also in the day we stand before Christ at the end of time. And there's two parts to this love of God's love being completed in us. First is what we just read in verse 16 by, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. When we know and believe that God loves us, when that takes up residence in our hearts, it burrows into our souls, right? Uh, uh, To know God's love is not the same thing as knowing what the capital of Austria is or knowing how to fix a car or whatever. Those you just look up and you know it, good, I'm good. But to know and to believe the love that God has for us, to trust it, to stake our lives on it, when that is perfected in us, we don't fear. 
Now, again, we have to qualify this a little bit. It's not that we don't reverence God when we know that he loves us. It's not that we're not in awe of the living God who is a consuming fire. But it does say perfect love casts out fear. And what I think John is getting at is when God's love has been perfected in us in such a way that we really know again and we believe the love that God has for us, then we're not insecure in the knowledge of his love. There's not a little part of us that wonders, okay, yeah, 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 but when you get right down to it, like, does God, is he a little tired of me? Does God really love me? When God's love is perfected, we can walk through the valley, and our first thought is not, God, do you care anymore? God's love completed in us to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It leaves no room for insecurity before God. Again, our confidence before God is never our faithfulness. It's never our ability to walk rightly. Why? Because all of us are prodigal sons and daughters who wasted the family inheritance, who ran and did our own thing. I, I don't care if, like, you know, you were, quote, unquote, born into the church and never did a, you know, never had a rebellious streak. We're all of us prodigal sons and daughters. And our confidence, again, is not the cleanness of our hands, but it's the God who saw us when we were a long ways away and ran towards us. That's our confidence, that God loves us. And so the first way that God's love is completed in us is, is we begin to really believe that, that God loves us. But there's a second part to it, and again, this is John's burden for us this morning, that we would know God's love for us, it would be completed, fulfilled, perfected in us. But then the second half of the equation, I'm gonna take us actually back up to verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The first half is, 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 is really receiving God's love and believing it. The second half is loving one another. And when we do that, when we receive God's love, when we live in that love, when we know and understand and believe that love, and then we begin to express it towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, God is, is present. No one has seen God, but when that happens, he's present and his love is perfected, completed, fulfilled in you. And again, this brings confidence. It brings confidence to some extent because, yes, it is evidence that we're Christ's. Anyone can say, I believe in Jesus. How we live is evidence whether that's a true confession, but it brings confidence in another way, too. When you're loved by someone in this church, the encouragement you can receive from a brother and sister in Christ, it's, it's just an echo of what God's love is like. I mean, you can make such a difference. You know, we, we bring all kinds of burdens when we come on Sunday morning that very few of us are gonna tell anyone about. We bring discouragements, fears, frustrations, and when someone just expresses love in a simple way or someone listens to us or someone expresses an encouragement, you can, you can, you can fill their life with light, and that's... It's just an echo of God's love for us. It's a reminder. When, when we love one another, it's a reminder. It's, it's, it's given us confidence that God really does love us, even when it's hard for us to believe it with whatever going on. When Christian loves us, it's, it's like God is working through them to tell us, hey, I love you too. It's God's love completed in us, perfected in us. Okay, so we want God's love to be perfected in us. 
We desire that. Where do we start? How do we do this? In verse 19, we love because he first loved us. In the end, if we, if we try to receive God's love, but we don't love other people, eventually we'll turn into stagnant pools, and eventually we'll stop receiving God's love. And on the flip side, often those who are least loving, who, who have the least love for other people, or the most insular, are those who also have received the least love from God. They're the ones who feel most unloved. And there's a physiological backing to this. This is very interesting. They've done studies on oftentimes kids who grew up in foster care. And kids who did not receive love from a parent at a certain age, usually six to 18 months, there's a part of their brain that doesn't develop. Like when they're, when they're just left to cry in a, in a crib in the corner and they're not held and cared for, there's, there's a part of their brain that fails to develop and when they get older, they struggle to show empathy. They struggle to love. Why? Because they never received love. That's a dynamic here. Again, that's, you know, you know, John is, is, is giving us tests for authentic faith, but it's never this is how we become a Christian. And that's why he front loads this with, look, yes, we should love one another, but love, but love is from God, and God is love, and these are the evidences of his love for you, and as you grow in this, and I want to add one other thing too, right? Again, loving one another is a test of authentic faith. And so what if we come to a place where we're like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. Ignore, I just said that last part. We love one another, so when we gather together, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So where do we start? We start with coming to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And we gotta be honest with that question, what do we think of God? Because again, our reflective answers are usually the right answers. And if you've gone to church long enough, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you probably have the right answer. But that pre-reflective gut-level response, we've got to be honest with that so that we can bring it to God and allow him to speak truly into us. We love because he first loved us. So that was the second point, that love is our confidence. Third point, that love in us is our evidence. I'm going to read 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, this is not evidence, or sorry, this is not the grounds for how we become Christians, loving one another. It's evidence that we are Christians. And as I mentioned, this is why John foregrounds the fact that God is love and he loved us and because he loved us, therefore we love one another. And if we ever try to flip that, that God loves us because we love others well, that's a burden that will crush us. We love because he first loved us. And we also have to ask the question, what if, what if we find ourselves in a place where we're having trouble loving brothers and sisters in Christ? Like we're just frustrated with a Christian. We're not enjoying being around Christians. We're not enjoying going to church but we want to. Does that mean we're not Christians? We've got to ask that question, because that's what John is saying. If, you know, this is a test for authentic faith, and if you don't love your brothers and sisters, then you're not a Christian. And I, I would say this. If there is someone who has zero desire to be part of a church, to be with other Christians, then probably, they're probably not a Christian. But for most of us who, who are just struggling, we'll listen to what he says. Again, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. I'm sorry, verse 11 
If God's loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's a logical, it's an argument. We ought to, but what does that imply? That means oftentimes we don't. So John is very honest that Christians struggle with this. There's only one who loved perfectly, and his name was Jesus. So sometimes, yes, we'll struggle to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is our evidence. This is the evidence of genuine faith. And so here's what I want to leave us with. It's just a simple question. God in his sovereign providence thought it was important enough that we love one another that he gave us 1 John. And it's one of the main themes of 1 John. He cared about it enough to bring you here this morning to sit in this room to listen to hopefully what was a faithful exposition of this text that we would love one another. So here's my question for you. If it's that important to God, what are you going to do about it? What's going to be your response? Part of it might be, you know, you have a long and faithful membership of this church and you're just tired. It may just be, stick it out, don't give up. It's worth it. It's what God desires for you. For some of us, it may be repentance and reprioritizing some of the ways we spend our time so that we have time for the church, for Christians. But again, my question is, if, if God cared enough about this, that we love one another, what are you going to do about it? And I, I just want you to know, for some of us who are busy, the thought of, oh my goodness, adding another obligation to my life, I can't anymore, this is too much. I just, I want you to know, we serve a Lord whose yoke is light. He's not a hard taskmaster. He only calls us to what is ultimately good for us because he is for us. And this God is love. So let's love one another. Let me pray. God, I pray that we will know, and not just know, but believe that you are for us. That the heart of reality in this chaotic and broken world, there is goodness. And there is one who loves us. May we freely surrender our lives to you, to give all of ourselves to you, because you are good and because you have so loved us. And may we so love one another that when people come in, they may know God is among them because your love is completed in us. Only you by your spirit can do such a thing. We simply offer ourselves in whatever way, way we can. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.